Hello, thank you so much for tuning into the Psychology Is podcast. I'm Nick and I'm excited today. I feel like I have a very special guest in Dr. Kelly Brogan. Kelly, welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Just a quick shout out to the regular listeners of the podcast. We publish this on YouTube and on most of the podcast streaming platforms. And I've heard from some consistent listeners recently, and it's just very encouraging. So just a quick shout out to those of you who have listened to multiple episodes. I'm glad you find it valuable. And I trust that this conversation will be invaluable to many, many people. So I feel like you're a very unique person, Kelly, because of a number of reasons, but perhaps chief among them is the fact that you have changed your mind on significant beliefs and even deviated from um, a lot of what you learned, the, the sort of paradigm that I imagine you adopted, or I know you said you adopted throughout medical school and specifically your psychiatry training. So, and I'll just say a little bit more, and of course you can fill in to the introduction here, but I know you attended MIT and studied neuroscience, and then you went to Cornell for medical school, and then you did your psychiatry residency at NYU. I understand that from that point, for a couple of years, you practiced psychiatry. And then, as you kind of have famously said, you set down your prescription pad forever. And I just think it's so rare that people change their mind on a paradigm that, you know, that the people change their paradigm on anything. So I know you've been in various places and have written about that process of changing your mind and the influences like Robert Whitaker's book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, and, and the evidence that you encountered, frankly, that led to that shift in the way you approach supporting people and, and practice. And um, so perhaps we, we don't have to go in depth about that right now. And I think it'll just kind of come through naturally, you know, at, throughout this, this conversation. And what I'd really like to focus on is your current approach to supporting people's mental and emotional well-being. So. Yes. I love, thank you for that thoughtful and comprehensive uh you know, introduction and, and question. I I was reflecting as you were saying, you know, that I that you you find me to be unique because I have found myself to be unique for the greater part of you know my adult life, interestingly. And I talk about that with myself uh, because it's not a compliment for me, even mm. though it's something that's definitely self-generated. This I call it terminal uniqueness, right? It's this experience that I have of being so different that I am alone. I feel alone and, and lonely. Uh, and that by way of introduction to a lot of the work that I now do, I must want to feel that feeling, right? I must have generated the conditions, at least in the past 10 years of my life and my more renegade career, um, to feel so unique that I can barely relate to others because this experience of loneliness and isolation uh, is decades old at this point and it's coming up for completion, right? It's coming up for me to really look at it and say, 
well, is that something I want to continue creating the conditions to feel? Uh, or does it feel like I can actually meet those needs within myself and create the conditions in my current life to um, support the meeting of those needs through others, right? And, and you know, so, so what are these kind of darker, deeper, so-called negative emotions? I know I can speak to you, you know, in these terms, um, shame and, you know, guilt and sadness and rage, um, you know, fear. And how can we make contact with them so that our behavior reflects personal responsibility and conscious intentionality? Mm. What comes with that worldview is great meaning, right? So I, I wrote um, in, you know, in Own Yourself that I, I feel that suffering ends where meaning begins. And I, I probably should say positive meaning, right? Uh, because we certainly make a lot of negative meaning out of many, many things that happen, including things that happen in our childhoods. Uh, and so when you live in a world that is meaningful, it lies in stark contrast to the world, you know, you could call it a materialistic worldview or, you know, a Cartesian worldview. Uh, Alan Watts calls it, you know, the, the, the perspective of, of floating on a dead rock in the middle of nowhere in a, in a flesh suit kind of a thing, you know, that we're subjected to the random forces of bad luck and bad genes and bad germs and whatever you want to say. And that all you can really bring to the table is your vigilance, right? And your intention to protect yourself and safety is really put on the altar of your life experience. But, you know, did we come here just to make it, you know, play it safe and survive until we die? Obviously, um, again, Alan Watts talks about how, you know, that would be like fast forwarding to the end of a song, you know, to just kind of get it done. I mean, we know that the experience of discovering who it is that we are and, and what it is that we are positioned to uniquely gift to the world mm -hmm. is probably closer to why it is that we came here. Mm -hmm. And so when we kind of live life um, through this meaningful lens, part of my mission has been to really bring that into the realm of physiology and medicine, uh, because there are so many spiritual figureheads uh, at the current moment who, in my opinion, um, have bypassed this realm and have applied their, you know, fairy dust and unicorns and, you know, manifestation boards and whatever else to so many arenas of life. But when it comes to health, uh, when it comes to embodiment specifically, we're back in the random field of meaninglessness and powerlessness, more importantly. So how do we experience the symptoms that arise, whether those symptoms are, you know, brain fog, diarrhea, hair loss, you know, auditory hallucinations, whatever they might be, how do we experience them as essential, right? Not only uh, personal, but actually an essential reflection that we actually need to, to generate awareness around in that moment in our life, in that window of our um, personal experience. And in that way, we can see symptoms as, you know, it, it's, it's me telling me about me. <laughs> And the war is over, right? So there's no warring against the body. There's no beating your cancer. You know, there, there's all of the rallies and the destigmatization campaigns that are pharma funded kind of fall away. And, and you're really left um, with an opportunity to develop intimacy with yourself. And I know, you know, even from having done silent 
um, retreats and things like that. I mean, God, God, there's about nothing I would rather do less <laughs> than develop intimacy with myself than be with myself, you know? So there is some deep aversion that we have, and perhaps that was conditioned uh, by our childhoods where we learned that there are parts of ourselves that are lovable and there are parts that we better hide, right? So it becomes a minefield within, you know, how do I know if that part is disgusting and shameful or if that's the part I should put on display and you kind of start to learn, you know, these categories within yourself, this conditional relationship to the self. And so that's a lot of what I focus on, you know, the, the quote unquote work that I do, what I put out there in the world and the community, you know, I support, et cetera, um, is really a reflection of, of my daily grind, you know, what it is that I've been dedicating myself to the past number of years, which is to um, take as much personal responsibility as I can to resolve what I call the only human pathology, which is victim consciousness. Wow, what a beautiful reflection right off the bat. Thank you for that. I mean, I, you know, your words speak to my soul and the, the em- emphasis on meaning, I think, is crucial. Like you just said, where meaning begins, suffering ends. And you, you refer to Viktor Frankl's work a lot in the book that I read of yours, Own Yourself. The surprising path beyond dep- depression, anxiety, and fatigue to reclaiming your authenticity, vitality, and freedom. It's a really good book. It's like I highly recommend it to people. And it comes to life in the way you tell so many stories about people's incredible healing and transformation and growth. Um, and and you very generously just lay out your whole program, you know, where even though this is something that pe- people can pay for online you also share it generously and you give people exactly the the lifestyle changes that you have found evidence for being highly effective in healing the body and and the mind and the soul so a couple the first so the first question that comes up um i'll just say this really quick speaking of victor frankel's work i just think it's always good for people to know the equation that he proposed of d equals s minus m which means despair is suffering without meaning but s plus m does not equal d does not equal despair this version of suffering that is also hopeless and completely defeating and robs us of vitality right so i I, that was one of you know one of his profound insights i think of the countless so i just wanted to add that in you know to what you were just saying and and then my first question is is in the beginning of your book you talk about how important it is that people have the perception of safety that there's a signal of safety that will if if affect their nervous system of course and then you you also encourage people to do things that they might that might feel scary or even unsafe like work with your shadow and enter the dark night of the soul and do difficult work in the world if it needs to be done which might make you feel very uncomfortable so can you just speak to me about that the the importance of signaling safety to your own brain and also being willing to do things that might make you feel unsafe in terms of internal processing yes that's such a uh 
an astute question. And I'll tell you just a funny thing about Viktor Frankl. So I had a very shame-inducing experience when I was uh, in medical school. I think it was a med medical school residency where I was reprimanded by um, an attending for, meaning like it's a higher up, um, for not giving proper credit you know, to her work in, in some slide I had in a presentation or whatever. And from that point on, I've been very attributionally oriented, right? So I'm constantly trying to make sure that I give credit where credit is due. Mm. And I remember when that phrase came to me, suffering ends where meaning begins, I said, gosh, where did I get this from, right? So I, I put it in quotes as you can search, right? At that time in Google, and I used to use Google. And I put it in quotes and there were three three hits, three, right? That, that's very rare that you would only get, you know, three responses. Mm -hmm. And and one was a, a blog that I'd written and the other two were Victor Frankl related. And I, wow, that is so interesting. You know, because it's not exactly his quote, but I think there's experiences that we have obviously where we, where we tap into universal truths. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the way in which narrative is potentially the greatest representation of the power of our choice. Mm. It speaks so much to that, right? And, and anyone who has flipped the script on a story where they were blaming somebody else and feeling small uh, and getting that little hit, like a kind of surrogate hit of power from that victim experience and in the drama triangle, you know, of, of the rescuer villain victim kind of um, drama, we know that the flipping of the script involves recognizing our role and the choices that we have made as small as they might be that could have led to the co-manifestation of this experience. But really ultimately the choice we have to meaning make around this in, in really infinite ways, in myriad ways. And that that power cannot ever be reduced eliminated or, you know, um, in any way taken from us. Mm. And that means that we are designed to be empowered no matter what. And certainly we know that we didn't incarnate at this time to experience bliss and pleasure and joy and happiness at all times. Right. So how, how could it be that we somehow are wired to retain that, that power when we also have this entire nervous system, right? We have sympathetic and parasympathetic branches that are, are themselves wired to deal with urgencies, emergencies, and danger. Mm. And there is a helplessness inherent in that. Well, those nervous systems, whether it's the fight, flight, or freeze, or the social nervous system, you know, that sometimes is called the appeasement arm or the, you know, fawning um, arm of the parasympathetic dorsal nervous system. If, if those exist, it must be because we are meant to adapt in such a way that we retain a measure of control. The thing is <laughs> that when that's sustained over time, right, rather than being kind of an on-off phenomenon, we, we kind of lose, I think, the original intention of that wiring, which is to allow us to regain a sense of agency, right? When you feel helpless, terrified, and, you know, at, at, on the brink of death, <laughs> let's say emotionally, not literally, when you 
vibrate up into anger, you kick up your agency, right? You, you get a hit of power and that's by design, right? We, we have these different kind of emotional tenors so that we can navigate adaptively. However, there's no unfinished business in the world of emotions. And so, you know, ultimately there's a metabolism and alchemy perhaps that is expected by the soul, if nothing else, uh, for us to, to revisit. And so how is it that we can do that revisiting, right? We can do that deeper exploration. We can complete processes that were initiated decades early emotionally. We can re-narrate um, and we can ultimately integrate. I, I have come to prefer the term integration to healing because I have a general resistance to um, the implication that anything's actually ever wrong with us, certainly with the body. And, and I've come to believe that, you know, the body never makes mistakes. Uh, and so how can we do that work, as you're saying, that that is likely to kick up those fight or flight defenses or, or freeze defenses and bring us back to the scene of the crime uh, without furthering the damage or deepening the, the trauma? And that's where my very biased perspective, I think, comes in, that there's a bit of a Maslow's hierarchy. There's an order of, an op of operations wherein... This work is so facilitated by a stable nervous system. There are many ways uh, to get to this. You know, I, I myself just started doing somatic experiencing work a decade plus into my own integration journey. And that's probably one of many, many avenues um, to, to get to this place. My bias is first resolve physiologic imbalances that are weighing you down and that are rendering you um, neurologically fragile in a way that you could then interpret as psycho-spiritual vulnerability, right? So what I mean by that is, you know, let's say your blood sugar is all over the map because you've been eating a standard American diet and maybe even you think you've been eating healthy, you've been eating like special K bars and you know, whatever it is, mm -hmm. um, Starbucks here and there, but your, your blood sugar's on this roller coaster. And every time you dip into reactive hypoglycemia, as it's called, you have like a jitteriness, you have maybe even like a kind of sense of like, Ooh, something's, something's here to worry about, you know, or something's not quite right. And maybe you have some other anxiety symptoms. You could be a little sweaty, racy heart. Maybe you even get to the point where you think maybe you have panic disorder or you're having panic attacks. Maybe you have insomnia and you're waking up a couple of hours after you fall asleep and you're going to go do like matrilineal <laughs> interrogation of your ancestry under those circumstances. You're not, it's never going to work. I mean, that's like going to, to battle with a, a pencil as your weapon, right? Kind of a thing. Um, so if you can, you know, send your nervous system this signal of safety through your basic lifestyle choices, which involve things like, you know, dietary choices, you know, the, the, the beverages or water you're drinking, the air you're breathing, what time you're waking up, you know, what kinds of products are you exposing your, you know, your body to, and, you know, do you have a burden to unload that is physiologic, which arguably, you know, swimming in, some 100,000 plus unstudied toxicants uh, in, in this daily industrial soup, who doesn't, 
right? So why, what, what entitlement is, is behind this supposition that we should just be able to live in this totally, um, you know, dysbiotic manner and somehow retain full physiologic uh, homeostasis? We weren't, we were designed to have symptoms when things are wrong, when we are living wrong and out of alignment. That's the point. Yes. So I used to think, oh, look, are we going to adapt and evolve to accommodate like perchlorate in our dry cleaning? Hmm. You know, I don't think we're meant to, right? I think our evolution is only meant to support so much wrong living by design because there's an experience of alignment with all that is that we came here to touch and make contact with and just kind of have that hit of contrast. Like I came here a separate being in my own little splintered reality, but I can make contact with that fabric of oneness and recall, you know, what it is I came from and where it is I'm going, or certainly that's my, you know, spiritual perspective. And there are many variations on that, yeah. that, you know, sing the same tune. So I believe first lifestyle choices, it's like the Buddhists say, like chop wood, carry water. Yeah. First, the ritual of your day to day, keep your eyes you know, your nose close to the ground or whatever the expression is. Keep your, your, your focus trained on like the hour to hour experience of your choices. Again, remember choices that pass to an experience of personal empowerment. So those choices, once you change your breakfast, right? Once you take these neuroinflammatory foods like gluten and dairy out of your diet, you will feel different. And either you'll feel different because of the physiology, right? And the disburdening of your um, your, your system and, or you'll feel different because you have entered into a neurobiology of empowerment versus learned helplessness, which is itself regenerative, right? You've shifted out of that helpless emergency dependent state and into the creative state where you are asserting agency. So let's say you went from the prey to the predator, and there is a whole different cascade, uh, a pharmacopoeia even that becomes available to you biologically when that happens. So it almost just unfolds, mm -hmm. right? And there's so little you have to do other than maintain that commitment. I'm a huge believer in discipline yes. and in, you know, the, these, these straight rigid lines that create that empty space, you know, that, that void in between that you get to play with and, and, you know, cast in whatever direction you're inspired to. So from that place, then you can do these kinds of inventories on the neglected aspects of your psychological, emotional landscape. And then you can start to look at, you know, these patterns that keep coming up, like we talked about in the beginning about my uniqueness programming or whatever it is. Um, you know, what have you seen in every romantic relationship you've ever been in? You know, what's the feeling you had when you were dumped or divorced or broken up with, you know, um, how are these, um, aspects of yourself begging for integration into the you, um, that is, is way more comprehensive and, and way deeper and way more complex than whatever it is you call your personality, mm -hmm. uh, which is right. an adaptation to the survival and existential level fears of abandonment, betrayal and rejection from our childhood. Mm -hmm. And it works. It works. Trust me. I mean, I have one of the more adaptive sets of defenses out there. You know, the ways that I protect myself from feeling feelings, I get rewarded by society for my particular defenses. Mm -hmm. And 
I wake up every day with this sense of, you know, this awareness that I, I've not even made contact with probably a good third of who it is that I am. And not only that, but I wouldn't even recognize her if she knocked on my door, right? Like, like what about the part of me that's lazy and incompetent and chaotic and irrational and volatile and, you know, out of control. What about that part? I've never lost my shit in my entire life. So, you know, that can't represent the full breadth of who Mm. I am. And so there's, there's something super scary about that because it feels like we'll dissolve into, you know, what it is to not have that identity propping us up will just sort of fade into insignificance. Or at least that's my flavor of of the fear Mm -hmm. Um, or irrelevance or unspecialness or, Mm -hmm. you know, be very um, worthy of, of rejection, right. That, that validation of that secret fear that will ultimately be rejected by those that we love. But the flip of it is, is different. The flip of it is exciting, right? Like how cool that I, you know, what if I'm this like really amazing seductress wild woman and I don't even know it, you know, and I get to be that, that's fun, you know, it becomes almost um, the theatrical experience that is probably a far more accurate representation of this simulation we opted into here. Mm. It's, gosh, I have several thoughts that are coming to my mind right now. Um, one, I just want to emphasize how important it is what you're saying about as you call it in the in your book psychiatric pretenders this is one of my primary critiques of the field of psychiatry it is criminal the way that people are diagnosed with mental disorders before the psychiatrist is even sure that there's not a bunch of super obvious imbalancing patterns in their life like sleep deprivation, for example. And so like you, you describe these psychiatric pretenders as imbalances that are physiological that leave you experiencing symptoms that are indistinguishable from diagnosable mental disorders. And there's seemingly no effort to differentiate the two, like what is a physiological symptom of an imbalanced lifestyle versus what is a truly psychological issue. And that is such a big problem because of course it leads to treatments that are just targeting symptoms. And so the person who's sleep deprived should have symptoms of that to indicate that they're sleep deprived so that they start sleeping more. But if you just knock out the symptoms, then they just go on business as usual, chronically sleep deprived, and that symptomology will become even more complicated. The way that it will express itself will become even more debilitating. So I just couldn't agree with you more. And I honestly, I like, thank you for making that a whole chapter in your book. You point out like five specific ones, and I'm sure you can think of many. Um, so I just wanted to emphasize that. And then the other thing is the, like you describe it, the evolutionary mismatch and the idea of people being canaries in a coal mine and the way that emotions are signaling something and that even if it's an unpleasant emotion, it's very important that you're feeling that because it's signaling that something needs to change or something needs to be processed or addressed. And that, that is the fuel. That emotion is the fuel to do those very things that would ultimately enhance your life. 
And so now we, you know, have this situation where people pathologize pain in a world. And I know I'm going on and on, but you're just inspiring a, a lot here. People are in pain in a world that is defined by an evolutionary mismatch where normality is increasingly incongruent with the type of world that we evolved to flourish in. And so it's like, of course, people are in pain. Like there's something very right about the person who's depressed because they're isolated. That's a good thing that you feel a super strong emotional state because the solution of course is connection in that case, not something that will just make that feeling disappear because you make the feeling disappear, then you'll just continue to be isolated and not feel like you need to change anything about that. So this evolutionary mismatch accounts for so much of people's pain and suffering. You know, our world is very, like you, you have a beautiful quote. I want to read it um, on this very note. Let me find it really quick. You wrote that, the true scope of our wandering from the path of right living is, is obscured by multi-billion dollar industries that are invested in meeting our primary needs with superficial satisfactions. Such satisfactions never do meet our true needs, but rather increase the symptoms of what is being labeled as mental illness. So there are forces in the world that are um, keeping us from realigning perhaps with what is evolutionarily um just natural i guess <sighs> i have a lot to say but <laughs> yeah i mean the truth is i'm a realist right and secretly i'm you know an optimist because i i know that humanity wins mm -hmm. this spiritual war that we are in the midst of I already know that. And I know that you already know that and that we all already know that, right? And so we're kind of playing this game. Um, and for me, that, that transition in, again, the narrative changed my life because I was, you know, sort of Joan of Arc vibes when I first learned what I learned about the industry that I had gone into $200,000 of debt to serve and blood, sweat and tears and probably developed my Hashimoto's diagnosis in no small part related to the stress of my training. When I, you know, sort of um, blew the lid off of thanks to I, some of the guests that you've even worked with um, those whistleblowers before me, I was so angry and I was really in that, that victim energy where I said, you know, bad mommy medicine and bad daddy government, and you'll never do this to me or any of my siblings again. And, and you know, I'm going to dedicate my life. And my first book was kind of in that, in that vibe with hundreds of scientific references and, and all the rest, you know, and then I got to a point after my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez died very suddenly in 2015, where I really felt I, I entered one of many actually dark nights. And I, I really felt like it can't feel this way to help humanity. It can't feel this way. This isn't the truth. The truth doesn't feel this way, right? So how do I get closer to the truth, which I know feels more like positive empowerment? Um, and I started to focus on celebrating those wins, right? Those um, theory disrupting, you know, dogma disturbing outcomes that shouldn't be 
right? So resolving lupus after 18 years and five weeks, you know, resolving recidivistic schizophrenia, healing Graves' disease without surgery. Um, you know, some of my public patients like Ali Zek, who's come out, you know, talking about how she was, um, you know, headed for state hospital or institutionalization uh, before she, you know, turned her light on and now is, is a lighthouse for the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I just sat in that, you know, sat in that feeling of like, this is amazing. The contrast of so-called illness to vitality is perhaps what we came here to experience that contrast, right? So the good news and the bad news is that meds don't work. If they worked, I wouldn't have a two-year waiting list for over a decade, mm. okay, of people trying to get off them. Because people don't want to get off of meds on a lark, right? Or just a big preference, right? So the thing is that actually no meds really work. And it's a game of, you know, what is that like? Hit the weasel Whack or whatever it is. Whack all, thank you. <laughs> you know, where it, 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 an effect is different from obviously a cure or remission right. transformation, right. right? So, so that effect can maybe transmute, um, you know, proximal energies or, or sort of like nearby experience, but ultimately the symptoms crop up, they complicate themselves. And that's for the reasons that we're describing because mm-hmm. the, these symptoms are here for a reason and we are not meant to, you know, sort of coast along in rural living. It's not, it's not how we're designed. So eventually you'll be presented with stronger and stronger knocks at the door Mm. until, you know, the cosmic two by four happens and and you're (laughs) really at that cross at that crossroads. But, you know, I reference all the time, this Krishnamurti quote that you are kind of dancing around, which is that it's no measure of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. Right. So when we, when we deeply consider that and we think, okay, so who are the sick people in the world? Are they fragile and broken and damaged? Or are they, as you said, and as I've written, are they the canaries in the coal mine? Are they the sensitive ones, the most sensitive ones, not only to trauma uh, and the reverberation of that enduring stress, uh, but also to the experiences in our environment that are that mismatch that, you know, you, you referenced, right? So, you know, you talked about the pretenders, what I noticed, um, which dovetailed with, you know, with my uh, experience of resolving Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is kind of the beginning of this journey for me, again, across like, they were like, you know, gluten-free breadcrumbs of scientific (laughs) papers, because that's the funny thing. I mean, the medical literature, there've been so many people who have um, spoken out about how corrupt the publication of medical literature is nonetheless it's all there mm-hmm. all of these truths are there that's how i learned this i'm not so i wasn't like raised some like bohemian you know homesteading earth mama i was completely secularly minded totally in the occultist allopathic paradigm like a card carrying mm-hmm. farmer rep basically mm-hmm. you know so the only way i would have cross that bridge 
is because of an experience of cognitive dissonance, right? Which is when you have a lived experience that is, is in so much defiance and contrast with um, your pre-existing worldview that you have to find a way to integrate, which sometimes involves denying its relevance right. or right. rationalizing in a way. So I had this experience of cognitive dissonance where I was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition that could potentially have been ongoing and, and maybe even disabling. And I had the impulse, you know, to, to resolve it with a naturopath or treat it because I knew what conventional medicine had to offer. And when I saw it resolve on paper, which I needed to see in black and white, my antibodies go from the high 2000s to the normal range in the space of a year, I had to explain that to myself based on my training that says what you eat doesn't matter unless you're like diabetic or you have end stage heart disease or something, renal failure or something like that. Um, and there's no real way to do anything other than manage chronic autoimmune conditions. Mm -hmm. So the way I chose to explain that was to see that I had seen, you know, been taught only part of the story and a very biased part at that. And for good reason, you know, because the schools are subsidized and the whole system is, you know, it's like, there's not, not even malice necessary to explain the, the level of the dupe, right? Like the, the deception. Yeah. It's all internally consistent, right? Mm. Pharma never said ever that they're here for your wellness. Mm. These are profit bearing, you know, uh, you know, beholden to their, their shareholders, documented criminals. I mean, literally documented felons. It's up to us to, to, you know, sort of invest our trust in, in these industries when they never said that they're here for our best interests. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's kind of like, I, I say sometimes it's like going to the, the butcher to, to get a vegan meal, right? Like if that's not what you're looking for, then you can go elsewhere. And certainly now, you know, where we know that there are many options and we've seen the evidence That's why I put my time and effort into publishing these cases so that they live in that medical literature, hopefully in perpetuity, then you really start to understand it's not necessarily about information. But I will say that having that lived experience can be the portal. And that's why I focus a lot on these pretenders, because you know, just to kind of list them off quickly, what I found is that, okay, I learned about thyroid, like real in depth. And I found in my research that, wow, if you look at the symptoms of hypothyroidism, low functioning thyroid, and you look at the symptoms of so-called major depressive disorder, they're almost one for one, mm. right? So that's interesting. And then I looked, you know, I was postpartum at the time and I found, wow, well, you know, actually postpartum thyroiditis is highly correlated with so-called postpartum psychosis. That's interesting. You know, and so I went down this rabbit hole of all of these medically documented drivers of so-called psychiatric pathology, right? So whether it's micronutrient deficiencies like B12 mm -hmm. um, that can lead to even catatonic depression, documented cases of that and gluten intolerance, so not celiac, um, you know, that can lead to even psychosis, right? Whether it's um, various medications. Yes. So this is a huge category, right? What happens when, you know, you get uh, sort of like, you know, tipped over into a depressive state because of a, a breakup 
and then you get put on birth control and then you develop mania and then you get put on, you know, lamictal and then it becomes this kind of like domino effect and nobody connects the dots, right? And again, these are all documented, whether it's birth control or antibiotics, there's something literally called antibiomania. Hmm. Are you consented for that? When you get a run of the mill Z pack from your internist, absolutely not. Right. And so most, most physicians were, were kind of trained to assume that if you really care, you're going to read the package, package insert, because guess what? It's all there too. Hmm. Right. And otherwise you kind of want us to make the decision for you. It's a dependent model. And we're going to make the decision with an inherent bias, right? Towards the benefits because we want to help physicians are, are at, at heart. They have either a great intolerance for human suffering that drives their, their desire to mitigate it. Right. Or they're, they're, they're people who have strong empathic um, connection to other beings and they want to help. So the bias is already baked in that they're going to focus on the potential benefits of intervention and minimize what seem to be rare um, adverse effects. And of course, if there's not a system in place for connecting the dots between these so-called adverse effects and new diagnoses that beget new medications, then we're in just this kind of cloudy mess, this, yeah. this kind of web of causality that nobody is attempting to un unravel. Mm. Um, and then the last one is this blood sugar that I mentioned mm. earlier, right? Which you could say, oh, well, that's, something wrong with your pancreas, or you can say that's your pancreas doing a really good job uh, informing you of what kind of dietary options are best for your physiology, right? And the ways in which blood sugar imbalance impacts every aspect, you know, from immune to endocrine to neurologic, neurochemical. Um, and so once you get those, well, it takes like a month, literally, to get, you know, to achieve homeostasis of, of some great, to some great degree, in these different arenas, you have a lived embodied experience of your power to heal, right? Of your power to change what it feels like to be you on a day-to-day -day basis. And that opens up the door for this really next chapter uh, of your life. Mm. I'm absorbing this. Yeah. Wow. So tell me, so I, I understand what you're saying. Your point is so well taken that by taking care of yourself, you can stay, you can, and resetting if you've gone a long time without taking care of your body. You can stabilize your physiology, your nervous system in a way that much makes you much more equipped and ready to handle stuff that's more rooted in our own our psychology and our our programming, our conditioning, our wounds, our past experiences. And I just think that that yeah that that that's crucial. Like that this is I mean you use the word holistic. Do you still use the word holistic to describe your practice? I do. I yeah. do. Maybe, yeah. This is, I mean, no, I just, I know sometimes we, you know, get sick of our own descriptors sometimes, but no, I, I love the word holistic and, and this is a good illustration of what it means to think in this holistic way. And along with, uh, just to add one little thing, two little things, um, along with medication reactions, I also feel like drug 
I mean, medications are drugs, but I mean, like illicit drugs are also overlooked. And I see this very clearly in the work I do in the in, in a jail where most people I work with in jail are in there on drug charges. So they tell me all about all the drugs, meth, heroin, everything. And the reactions that 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 brings about, of course, are often overlooked or even just alcoholism. Um, the symptoms of drinking way too much alcohol will definitely map onto one DSM condition or another, you know? So I just wanted to emphasize that as well. And then regarding the micronutrient deficiencies, I spent a lot of time and my dissertation was even related to the orthomolecular treatment of schizophrenia. And so I kind of stepped into that world, I dove into the deep end of that world and and studied Abraham Abraham Hoffer's work, you know, all of it basically tracked all his publications and the whole field of orthomolecular medicine. And yeah, it's just, it's just so interesting. Like Abram Hoffer's um, main focus was in using niacin for schizophrenia. And one of the first things he noticed was, as many people know, you know, there's a specific condition that would manifest if you were deficient enough in a particular vitamin. And so for vitamin B3, that condition is called pellagra. And the symptoms of pellagra look a lot like schizophrenia. It includes these signature features of schizophrenia. And so that was one of his first clues that, well, then maybe people who are exhibiting symptoms of schizophrenia are, are deficient in this vitamin. And, and you know, the, the evidence is mixed. The truth, that's, that's my assessment. But generally speaking, I would say it's, it, it was dismissed way too quickly and is still dismissed way too quickly by many people. It's all very complicated by the unfortunate fact that every construct in the DSM is so unstable and is redefined with each new edition of the DSM. So it makes it tricky to compare someone with a schizophrenia diagnosis in 1969 versus 2019. So it's complicated, but my impression is that for some people, it seems that they might need higher doses of certain micronutrients and that if they are deficient in them, there will exhibit symptoms that could be diagnosed as a psychological disorder. So I think that field has merit. And then the other last thing I wanted to add, just this quote that I'm sure, you know, needs some caveats, but the quote is with proper diet and lifestyle, medicine is of no need with improper diet and lifestyle. Medicine is of no use. And so again, Surely there's some caveats necessary there, but just to put an exclamation point on the importance of diet, lifestyle, lifestyle factors, it's crucial. Yeah. I mean, certainly in my training, I'm sure most people know at this point that allopathic physicians are, at least from my generation and I imagine previous, are offered, I had one hour on uh, nutrition, it was very so-called functional, meaning like, you know, uh, so that I would know how to order particular diets uh, for inpatients, right? So do I order the 2000 calorie diabetic diet or, you know, and there's some like minor, even in the psychiatric outpatient realm, some minor sort of consideration of maybe some 
counseling uh, around, you know, not to drink big gulp sodas, uh, you know, with your um, diabetogenic antipsychotic medications. Okay. <laughs> and there's no, um, it's considered such a window dressing. So as much as it's the PC thing to do to offer those caveats you were referencing, I never do mm. uh, because I think it's very, you, people can figure out their own caveats, right? And that's part of an individualistic society, right? Is, is to actually treat people like adults rather than dependent children mm. and to entrust uh, others to do their own research, homework, and interrogation of the sources of information that they choose to expose themselves to in, in the modern, you know, era where there is such an abundance of uh, content that it's really up to each of us to discern, right? So I don't offer those caveats because I, I think that they end up kind of pulling on those um, very well-conditioned, deeply conditioned uh, threads that right. say, oh, none of that stuff really matters when it comes down to it, right? And that's why in my practice, you know, um, they're it was a non-pharmaceutically oriented and based practice. And, and what that means is all of them, right? Tylenol, Advil, antibiotics, birth control. And the intention of all the patients who would come to me was to experience what it is to be themselves liberated from the paradigm entirely. I didn't tell them that's what they should do. They came to me with that intention and mm -hmm. desire, right? And of course, then at that point, what am I really doing? Not much. And that's why the program is in the book, the online version, if you want a little more handholding and a little, you know, community, et cetera. But all that I'm really doing or ever have is to return per permission, right? Return that locus of control back to the individual. And for whatever reason related to, you know, the, 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 the nature of this paradigm, I am in a position to offer that mm. permission, right? To say, you have permission to pursue this thing you want and you can have it and you want it. It's available. Mm -hmm. And here's, you know, one case report and here's another, and here's an IRB approved right. randomized trial. I published, you know, and all those things. Um, because I do believe that once you know something is possible, you can step into as Rupert Sheldrake calls it the morphic field. Um, you can access that pre-existing reality to support your process um, and, and that is why the mindset is so important. And if we say, oh, well, you know, medication is important for emergencies and it is important for really serious illness. And I'm sure it does save lives and all these tropes. We do a great disservice to what we really want to speak to, which is what is it to be human, right? What is it to truly align with the human experience without, without exceptions, without caveats. And that doesn't mean that when the, you know, if, if you break your arm or whatever it is, you can't make a decision that reflects a shift or a nuance or an evolution of your belief system. But it, it's about what it is that you want to deeply inhabit and explore, right? If, if I decide I want to know what it, it, it's really like to be a woman. Mm. Then the choices, decisions, and the way that I talk to myself, the, the lens that I put here is going to be deeply informed by a committed, high integrity and high fidelity perspective on womanhood, mm. right? 
And I'm not going to say, well, but I, I could be a man or, you know, I could be uh, whatever the <laughs> ever expanding alternatives are. The point being, try it on. And there's so much support to try on a high fidelity belief because these, you know, there's so much in integrative medicine, right? That speaks to the best of both worlds. Mm. That irks me because mm. you never get, you don't get the best of both worlds. You get neither. And there's something in the purity of absolutism for a period of time, for a period of exploration that helps you deeply explore what it is that comes up for you when you're in one camp. Now, obviously my bias is I was in one camp. Now I'm in another camp, right? So you could say, oh, she's an extremist. She's an absolutist. And I will own that absolutely. <laughs> uh, and what that has offered me is to really explore not only the dramatic differences in the lived experience. My worldview now is so beautiful. It's so empowering. And it's so devoid of the fears. You know, this other shoe dropping, a lump in the breast, and oh, a cough and a fever or whatever. I don't live in fear of my body, right? That's an amazing way to live. I enjoy believing this and it propagates forward in positivity. And there are some other interesting things that come up, right? And, and then if I do feel afraid one day, I get to look at that in a different way. I get to hold it differently without just sort of leaping out of this paradigm and into the other and kind of straddling both when they really are meant, you know, to live in, in some sort of, uh, polarity. You know, I've been thinking so much about the image of the yin yang and how we've been, I think, socioculturally conditioned to inhabit this gray, smushy, you know, sort of inclusive realm. Mm. It's time to get organized so that we can really look from over here in my individual body and you over there in your individual body and say, wow, I'm different from you. Mm. And what do we have in common? Right. We can't do that when we're too busy being both of us. Mm -hmm. And so I'm obviously, you know, uh, here to hold the pole of radical holistic medicine. I actually believe in the human body, unlike so many of the so-called holistic, functional and integrative folks out there who are shilling for pharma when it gets scary. And that is very confusing for people. Right. Because then it sets up a a condition for their nervous system to say, is it scary enough yet? Mm. That vigilance will be the greatest barrier to your enjoying the fruits of this mindset. Wow, yeah. When you have to carry that vigilance of, am I there yet? Is it bad enough yet? Right? Because the relaxing into no, everything is meaningful. Everything is okay. You've got this. You can handle this. You're, you're, you were born for this experience. You chose it. And now it's happening. Get in there, check it out, right? Own it. That is something you can relax into. Yeah, and the, the, the thing is that we have, been, we have been taught that symptoms are scary, that our body is scary, that we could harm ourselves or others. It could be irrevocable, you know, uh, irreversible, the damage and injury. And then we feel ashamed that we made the wrong decision and weren't careful and cautious enough and, didn't, in, you know, invoke the system early enough or whatever it is we tell ourselves. And we don't have a true metric um, through which to engage that, right? Because any symptoms are scary. 
literally any of a scrape on your knee, <laughs> right? Can be scary, let alone an experience of hopelessness that feels like you want to press the reset button on your life. Okay. Or, you know, bleeding out of an orifice or whatever. Mm-hmm. The whole range is scary because we've been conditioned to, to fight and war with our human bodies. Mm-hmm. And so who is to say when it's an emergency, truly, you know, sort of warranting intervention. So what is it to try it on just as a worldview, you will know what you need when you inhabit this worldview. And it may be that what you need in a so-called emergency seems inconsistent with your holistic belief system. That's fine because you are expressing your agency. You're the one making a decision. You know, I'll tell a brief story about um, my cat. Okay, so so my children have never been to a hospital or a doctor or anything, okay, ever. Um, and they are robustly healthy, incredible, amazing, beautiful girls, okay. So I adopted two cats recently and my one cat is, um, you know, had an experience of a lot of trauma in his young life um, and he's got some issues, you know, and he was neutered and all of this stuff before I adopted him. Okay. Long story short, he experienced a urinary block, right? Which in the cat world, um, you have about 72 hours before this is theoretically fatal. Now, I already know not to take these prognostic hexing uh, statistics as at face value. And I already have a large, um, you know, toolkit of things to help this creature with uh, that I extrapolate from my human experience and my experience as a mom. I ultimately chose, although it didn't feel like a choice at the moment, to take him to the pet ER. For the first time, I've never, never done that with my kids, right? So this was a big, big deal for me. I was like hysterically crying, all the things. And I felt like a totally unempowered little kid, to be honest, right? And I sat there in the parking lot and I recognized, all right, Kelly, you have choices here. You could let him pass on. You could continue doing what you're doing and create space for some sort of unanticipated and potentially previously undocumented shift just the way you've done with hundreds of patients, okay? You know that the impossible is possible. You could, you know, manifest all sorts of support that could open up new pathways of of support and treatment for him. And you could take him to the emergency room for a catheter. It's a choice. We get into trouble when we abdicate that choice that we, you and I spoke about at the beginning. If I could retain, I knew, Neurologically, right? Neurobiologically, if I could retain the experience of making this choice, not saying, oh, I had to bring him to the emergency room, then I continue to inhabit my holistic world. This is the, the closest I've come. I'm sure people can tell all sorts of stories about you know choices that they made to invoke allopathic medicine after a dedication to holistic living. This is literally the only example I can offer. And it felt very essential to me to tell myself that this was an agency oriented experience and to really dismiss that reflexive. I had no choice. I had to go to the ER. I had to go to the doctor. I had to get this. I had to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because really this isn't so much about herbs over Prozac. Okay. Obviously, hopefully that's clear. It's about what is it, what happens to your life experience 
when you take responsibility, when you own yourself, what happens? And it, as far as I have seen, so, you know, thus, thus far in these years, um, is a magic carpet ride that is so rich with, with deep personal meaning that I wouldn't trade it for all the safety in the world. Beautiful. Yes. And I, I just, I'm kind of relating to this on a personal level and thinking about situations where I was in a similar conflict because yeah, I, I, I think, you know, our, our ways of life align in many ways and I'm not quick to go to the doctor for myself, for my children and things like that. So, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that obviously there are many situations I can think of where that would be my first instinct. Um, but yeah, as long as it's based in choice, then you're kind of coming from a paradigm of personal responsibility, like you're saying, and empowerment. <clears throat> well, I want to, I want to ask you a question and I'm aware of the time. So I know we're reaching the end of how much time you have. Um, I guess I'll say this really quick because we don't have time to get into it, but I, I just think that it's so problematic that there's so little support for people who want to taper off of psychiatric drugs. And I appreciate that you offer some insight about that and some more resources about that in your book. So I, I encourage people to visit your website because there are obviously growing numbers of people who are like, wait a minute, no one ever told me that this was going to be this addictive and that there were going to be this many adverse effects and that I was going to be this dependent on it. I want to get off. But then I can't find anyone who's actually capable of guiding me through that. So, you know, I, I think you are someone who is capable of guiding people through that. And I appreciate how real you are by saying that, yeah, you're going to enter a dark night of the soul. It's, it's going to be difficult. And that in itself, just kind of knowing that ahead of time is already already makes it less scary, I think. Um, and, you know, it, I, I always think that one of the most important messages anyone could ever receive when they're experiencing difficult emotions is that it's not only will it change, but it's changing as we speak. Mm -hmm. And so this process, it is unfolding. You're already falling up, as you say, you're already moving through. So it's not even like it will pass, it is passing. Mm -hmm. So that I think is important for people to remember. And, you know, I'm also, I've said this on other podcast episodes, but I'll say it now that I, like I mentioned, work with people with severe drug addictions to, you know, drugs that actually are not that very, not that different from prescription drugs, just uppers and downers. Mm -hmm. And when they are uh, forced to withdraw, there's very little sympathy that they get. There's no guidance. It's just like, sometimes they do it in jail. Sometimes, I mean, usually it's in jail because that's, that's when they're forced to, to withdraw and they go through the hell of like heroin withdrawal and they have all the detoxifying processes that their body undergoes, which are unpleasant. So the diarrhea, the vomiting, the fever, the shivers, the kicks where your legs are super antsy, but there's just an interesting difference between how they just handle it they just go through it it's part of the culture of the people i get to know in the jail who are in the kind of um 
underground drug world, not mainstream drug world. But then, but then when someone's like, I think I might want to get off of Prozac, everyone's like, hold on, you can't just stop taking the drug. And it's like the contrast is so stark, you know, and just because the population of people who are drug addicts in jail, they're not really, um, let's just say, given the same level of care and caution about how they conduct their life. We just say, all right, yeah, kick heroin, get sober, and we'll let you out of jail once you're sober. But then again, we have people who are dealing with prescribed drugs, and it's just this kind of... It, it, I mean, people are made to believe that you can't, you just shouldn't. Maybe you can lower the dose, but you shouldn't get off. So I'm, I know I'm saying a lot right now, but I just want to point that out and, and just say to people that you're a good resource. Dr. Brogan's a great resource if you want to taper off your psychiatric drugs. And I'm sorry to people that there are not more resources available um, to do that in, in the right way. I'll, I'll also reference my conversation with Dr. Joanna Moncrief, she goes into it in our conversation and she's written about it as well. She's a psychiatrist as well. So anyway, there's, there's all that. And I wish we had more time to get into it, but I just wanted to mention it and then ask you two last questions. If you have a few more minutes. And I can say something quick about that too. Okay. Yeah, yeah, please do. Please do. Okay. I'll just say, yeah. Cause it's, I mean, we could obviously do a whole show yeah. on this topic and, and my perspective has evolved pretty considerably, you know, because you said you should expect a dark night of the soul. That is my bias, right? Mm-hmm. I never treated, uh, you know, the folks who stopped 20 years of, of Zoloft on a Wednesday and went on to live their lives. I never saw those folks. I'm mm-hmm. sure that they exist. Right. True. Because even in what we are calling the biophysiologic realm of detox and withdrawal and discontinuation syndrome, as euphemistically referred to in the literature, um, even in this realm, there is personal meaning, right? So what I have found is that whether you're talking about the heroin detox or whether you're talking about, you know, the, the risperdal um, taper, that first of all, I've come to understand that the psychiatric medications are, are, are by a long shot, the most habit-forming chemicals on the planet. I mean, most people who have any experience in the taper and withdrawal realm uh, when it comes to psychotropics, I mean, it's it's not even in the same universe of, you know, a five-day alcohol detox or oxycodone, you know, withdrawal or whatever you might say. So that being said, there there is an initiation, right? When you talk about kind of what, street drug um, so-called addicts go through when they withdraw, it's it's scary, it could be deadly, and it is a psychic hell. It's a psychic confrontation with something that can feel worse than death, right? Because it may actually represent the death of an old self um, that is no longer welcome, right? That's no longer serving, that no longer fits. And this initiation, is a part of the process of what it is to then be someone who lives not just without these drugs, but who has no need for them. There's not even a relevance for them in your new world. To get from that world to this one, you got to cross a bridge. Mm. And it's, you know, it's not meant to be, it's like childbirth. It's not meant to be 
like a somnolent kind of waltz, mm. you know, through the meadow. It's designed to be this way. So that's why, you know, the caveat I, I want to offer is like, that's why the protocol that I have become very attached to, you know, that's Vital Mind Reset Online or in the book or whatever. That's why you prepare for an initiation, right? If you were in an indigenous tribe, you would prepare for that vision quest for a while, right? There's a psychological, emotional preparation, there's physical preparation, there's support, um, you know, from elders and others who have already um, traversed these spaces. And so that preparatory ritual, if you will, of, of this protocol may be what is, is required to, you know, sort of set the foundation for the work that you will do. And I love what you said about kind of essentially emotional alchemy, right? That because we're not, you know, as kids, what are we told? Stop crying, you know, no, have this lollipop. It's okay. It's okay. You know, all that we're conditioned around is bad feelings are bad. Stop feeling them, make them go away, fix it. And so we stuff them and we have no capacity psychologically, emotionally, physically to hold these states of energy. Mm-hmm. We have no intimacy with them, familiarity. What's going to happen if I feel this level of terror? Am I going to die? That's what it feels like, right? So to get in touch with the yes, right? To get in touch with the desire beneath every so-called negative emotion is a deep longing, right? It, that is unfulfilled. So how can you begin to start to identify and align with those desires that you have for your life? Because you get to build your life, Mm. build your life based on intimacy with your needs and with your wants. And then you start to learn how to ask for those things and to create the conditions for those to manifest in your lived experience. And you're in charge of that. That's the good news and the bad news, right? Is that you're in control of that. And, you know, that is, is reparenting in, in its essence, right? It's, it's um, offering to yourself what you weren't offered as a child because your parents weren't offered, offered it as, as children themselves. Mm-hmm. And so this, this process of coming off of medication, I think actually now, you know, cause the collective evolution around this relative to when I first started in this, um, this field and dedicated my practice, you know, in 2010 to medication tapers, um, without ever, ever starting a patient on medication again. So that's a, was a unique aspect of my practice. Um, I do think it's evolving. Yeah. I'm not so sure you need an expert. I'm not so sure you need tons of resources. Mm. Yes. Would it be helpful to read, you know, my book and to orient yourself to other resources out there and other stories of success and all the rest? Yes, absolutely. Feed that field of your empowerment. Um, and I kind of feel like if you want it, you'll have it. Mm. You'll figure it out. You'll mm. draw to yourself whatever it is that you need to walk this path. And I don't know, again, that the field really existed to hold that kind of self-sovereign uh, experience the way that it does now, even five years ago. So it's a really exciting, exciting time for personal liberation and mm. the experience of self-discovery and all that is reclaimed um, through that journey. I feel that too. And that was actually one thing that I came to my mind when you were talking about the way that sometimes your uniqueness is almost isolating. I was thinking, hopefully, and I do have the sense that 
the community around the very things that make you so unique in the way you think is growing. There's more and more people who are beginning to think in this way. So hopefully that feels less isolating. In fact, on that note, um, I love the birth analogy. It's just so perfect. And, you know, you wrote about how you gave birth at home and how there was a, a moment during your birth when you even thought, I don't think I can do this. And um, just 10 weeks ago, my wife gave birth here at home as well and literally said those words out loud. And our midwife, this this amazing woman named Hope, she was like, yeah, everyone says that. It's the death, right? I mean, and that's why I've come to understand suicidality so differently and write about mm. it quite controversially uh, because that's what it feels like when the illusory you is dying it feels like i can't it's like the the death knell right it's the swan song and it's it's how you that's what the initiation landscape is meant to evoke in mm. you yeah it's that sense of like the me uh that i brought to this threshold is not going to to actually cross it mm. it's the more essential me right. that will ferry my soul um, yes. over over this line mm. and yeah i mean it's got to be it's got to be entertaining as a as a bird supporter you know to hear that every time <laughs> out of their mouths you know and it's 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 the darkest before the dawn yes. kind of contrast right that is is built into um you know the, these i guess the the kind of architecture of mm. this hero or heroine's journey Amen. Yes. And that darkest before dawn element, like the moment when a person thinks, I don't think I can do this is probably when they're right about to do it. And like, literally that's with my wife, our daughter emerged minutes after she said that. And, and it was just, Oh gosh, we could talk a lot about home birth because we've, my wife had both our children at home and I witnessed her overcome a lifetime of conditioning around birth. Oh my goodness. The, with our first child, she, she was particularly sensitive and afraid of birth, as she would say. And throughout the pregnancy, she just confronted that, overcame it and found that part of herself who knew better. And yeah, and gave just two beautiful home births that are, it was, oh my gosh, it was just so incredible. It was the most amazing experiences of my life to witness that and be part of that. So yeah, and we have a nice little community, a tribe of home birthing empowered mothers, many of whom love your work and have shared some interviews with me. So they'll be happy to hear this interview. Uh, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And it's, there are a few subjects actually um, that I feel more passionately about. Than home birth because of what it represents as the the really the beginning right of of this process of self abnegation and uh, actually um, usually parentally enabled uh, you know sort of um, sacrifice honestly, mm. of of the child at the altar of a, a whole perspective on the human experience that is not beautiful and is not empowering and isn't really what we came to experience apart from our desire to truly uh, inhabit those contrasting, uh, you know, contrasting worldviews. So yeah, mm. big believer in that. Mm. 
can I ask you one last question that you could probably answer in long or short versions? So I'll take the short version. The question is, how have you dealt with people's attempts to smear your character as you've spoken out so boldly and fearlessly and undermined so many cherished cultural beliefs? You know, like your Wikipedia page, it's just, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna edit this. Cause it's just dumb. It's like so unrepresentative of your brilliance and your elite education and just, yeah. So anyway, how, how have you dealt with that on a personal level? I think it's cute. I think it's funny. <laughs> I really do. You know, cause, cause uh, I remember years ago, um, actually it was after I wrote a article on Homebirth, a blog that I uh, experienced like quite a lot of, uh, feedback, if you will, um, including aerial shots of my home, you know, oh, okay. with death threats and all the rest. And, you know, that was a, actually when I started to do my own deeper um, trauma work in my own life. And I feel I was reflected these things to invite me deeper into how it is that I was projecting my shadow onto the so-called enemies and whatever else. So there's no victim story here uh, either. Um, however, it was uh at that time that some, you know, one of these CDC shills put up a, a site called the ugly ableism of Dr. Kelly Brogan. I said, what is ableism? I've never heard that word before. And of course it has all these kind of like eugenics um, connotations and everything else. And, and when I really sort of looked at it, I said, you know what? I am an ableist. I do believe you can have a home birth. I do believe you can cure anything. I do believe you can get off those meds. I'm going to tell you all sorts of stuff that nobody's ever told you. And it's because I deeply and passionately believe it. Okay. And what I recognized is that all, all of these criticisms have at least a grain, if not a huge chunk of truth in them. There's, it's like a, it's a playful game. It feels like to me, and you know, at this point in time, uh, my husband and I have been identified apparently as domestic terrorists and are on a short list of 12 people uh, who are apparently responsible for the misinformation the world over. Hmm. And to me, it feels like the, you know, the kind of bully on the playground who has a crush on me pulling my braids. It, <laughs> it doesn't have a malevolent feel. Hmm. Maybe that's just how I choose to experience it. Um, it really doesn't bother me. And when people criticize me, it just, I don't know, it's very easy for me to not take it personally. So when you say that also, cause I was so, I was those people, I still am those people. Right. So like, what am I going to get into like a, uh, you know, like a Instagram comment war with my former selfhood, <laughs> you know, so it just doesn't strike me as, as being compelling. Um, and when you say, like, I speak fearlessly and all this stuff, this is not where my courage expresses. This, I, I feel relief. This is therapy for me to run my mouth, you know, mm -hmm. and speak my mind and represent my truth. Mm -hmm. Where I experience courage is when I, you know, I look at my daughter and I say, you know what? I messed up when I spoke to you that way or when I... I, I apologize to my husband or when I sit down with my brother after we haven't spoken for nine months, you know, it makes me tear up, you know, like mm -hmm. those are the moments in my life where I'm like, wow, Kelly, you're brave, <laughs> you know, like you did that. And that was super scary. And, 
And it felt like my heart was racing and I felt like I wanted to curl in a ball and die. And I did it anyway. That is where I experienced myself um, as growing. And it's where I feel pride in myself. You know, my public advocacies, I'm just, I'm in a good position to get the back of anyone who already believes this. I was credentialed to, you know, in, in the right way and I got the right tools and I, you know, maybe even incarnated with the, with the right weapons, uh, so to speak, uh, for this spiritual war. And that, it's just a natural extension. I could, I could literally do it in my sleep. I don't care. I literally don't care what anyone has to say about anything I have to say in the world. And I hope it's helpful to the people who resonate with it. Mm. That's it. In my personal life, it yeah. is a whole different <laughs> experience, you know, and I care yeah. deeply about, you know, what it is that my friends, my beloved, my children, you know, um, think of me and it's how they experience me. And, you know, I'm constantly working to expand my tolerance uh, for them to ex be disappointed in me and to see me as bad and wrong and to be angry with me and all of that, you know. So there's a real contrast in, in the work, so to speak, there. Absolutely beautiful. And thank you for opening up on a personal level like that. Wow. Well, we, you've given me more time than we planned on, and I'm extremely grateful for that. I, I trust that anyone who's still listening has found this to be valuable. And again, I shout it out to those consistent podcast listeners in the beginning, and I shout out to you again now, the people who want long form conversations and yeah, who find this valuable. So thank you to all the listeners and watchers and just such a huge thank you to you, Dr. Kelly Brogren. I'm so glad we're connected now and this has been a great conversation. Thank you. It's been really a pleasure. Thank you so much.